We all like winning. Yeah? We also know people who really like winning. They let you know. And people can exclaim, I won! But the question we should ask is, but which race did you win? When people make winning the goal, life can become a game which you can cheat. When winning's the goal, I will then play whichever game I am best suited to win at. Which then means I am no longer playing the right game. I'm playing the easy game. I'm playing the game in which I can be first place. And then the rest of the game is me doing everything I can to maintain first place. To make sure that you stay in second place. And that I don't ever fall back into second place. We all play this game. In one area of life or another, we want to win. But which race are we winning? We're going to see in Jeremiah there are actually two races. If you will look at chapter 12, verse 5. Jeremiah was crying, which he does often in this book. And God is responding here in 12.5, and he says, If you, Jeremiah, have raced with men on foot, and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? If you can't keep up with humans, Jeremiah, you don't have a shot with horses. And what we learn is that there's actually two races There's the race with humans. This is the race we're all born into. It's the race we all are running. It's the game we're all playing to win. The race against humans. And then there's the race against horses. You might think, Pastor Brandon, these don't even compare. I'm just trying to say what was there. So maybe you're saying, God, how are you comparing us with horses? That's not even fair. Horses are clearly faster. But here's where you're getting to the point. We are comparing two different levels of racing. God has a vision in which you and I live so fully alive in his gospel with his son living in us, our sins forgiven, his power within us, that we are no longer playing the petty game the entire world is born into trying to see which human being can be the fastest or the best but instead that we completely shift the game we're playing and enter into a completely new level of racing. Horses. C.S. Lewis says something in Mere Christianity, great book if you haven't read it, in which he says, God is not trying to take humans and make them better humans. Sometimes that's our mentality is, well, I'll just, now that I have Jesus and I have the Bible and I have these ways to live, I'm just going to become a better version of myself. But C.S. Lewis says, no, that's missing the point. He's not just making us better versions of ourselves. He's actually trying to change us into a whole new creature, the sort of creature that can beat the old creation at its own game. He uses the analogy of people are trying to become better people and jump higher and run faster. He says God's trying to make us into horses that have wings that don't have to try to jump harder or faster. They can just soar. And isn't this what Paul says in the New Testament? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that in Christ we are new creations. We are new creatures. And if that is true, then I am not just a new Brandon who is slightly better than the old Brandon. I'm a new creature. I am not just a critter and a human that's born. I'm now a son of the king or a daughter of the king. So if I'm a new creature, why do I go around trying to be better than every other human? Why am I still trying to play that game, run that race? Why am I not transforming into the big leagues And this makes everything different. Now, 
you're no longer so worried about what so-and-so is doing or how they're doing this or, or, or out-earning or out-possessing or out-beautifying or out-slimming or out-dieting or out-present purchasing or out, you know, I got to outdo my sister this Christmas. You're no longer playing that. That's racing with humans. That's race number one. Race number two is a completely different realm. Horses don't even compare to humans. They can far outrace them. And while all these people are glorifying who the winner is in this first race, you're over here in the second race going, do you, you guys realize that you invented your own race and it's not even the best show in town? And yet we do this. We do this in politics. My party won. My, my, my legislation got passed. My team are the champions. I climbed over my colleague into the next position in my business. I, and all these things. I finally have the white picket fence with the real lawn, which probably means you move, but that's okay. <laughs> Some people think that's winning the race too, I guess. I don't know. I think moving up here is pretty good. But <laughs> first race. Now, don't get me wrong. This race was necessary, and all of us have done it, and you needed to do it. You needed to run this race in order to gain an education. Nobody learned anything by saying, I'll take last place, I don't care. All of us realized there was a reason to learn something. There was a reason to try to be smarter or to try to earn more or to try to apply yourself harder than the next person so that you get more opportunities. We've all been part of this and it's been to an extent part of our survival. But there comes a point when we invest all of our energy into training to win this race that we are exhausting ourselves and God then looks at us and says, um... If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you ever compete with horses? So, in other words, let's not expel all of our effort into training to win the human race. Let's instead seek to be transformed to become the kind of humans who can enter the second race and run with horses. That's where Jeremiah is, and that's where he's going to be challenged. So, are you ready to see this? In chapter 11, verse 1, Jeremiah is told to go deliver a sermon. Poor Jeremiah. He's never given good words that people like. He's always given the sermons that people are like, oh, great, it's his turn. <laughs> Why is Jeremiah in the temple? It's not good days. Not a good day if he's on the temple mount. And so, in verse 9... Um, again, Yahweh said to me, A conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who have refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, verse 11, thus says Yahweh, behold, and remember Jeremiah is saying this to a crowded group of people, behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. How's that for an altar call? All right, sinning Jerusalem, God's bringing a disaster because of your sins that you cannot escape. And if you pray to him, if you come down right now and pray to him, he won't hear you. Mike, drop, leave. And everyone's like, Where, who is this guy? <laughs> Jeremiah. Who is this guy? Okay. He's the priest born into a priestly family of Anatoth, the city of Anatoth. He's born a priest. The beloved priest. Everybody loves the priests. The priests sit with them when somebody needs help. They listen to your problems. They pray for you. They teach you the ways of God. Everybody loves the priests. Jeremiah was a beloved priest. And then God said, Big leagues, buddy. I'm going to make you a prophet. And as we saw in chapter 1, Jeremiah had the knowledge, the foresight to say, No! Anything but a prophet. And then God promised Jeremiah, I will make you as strong as a castle so that nobody will be able to come against you. So now he has to go and say these words that tear his heart out. And we see his private prayer life is one of grief and anger toward God that he's doing these things and weeping. And so 
the people around him, they don't like him. Jeremiah is not the only prophet. It's not like the land's going, oh, we need a prophet. Jeremiah, he's leading us. No. As we see in the text, there are other prophets that Jeremiah is always complaining about. He says, God, why are they saying all these things everybody loves and you make me say the truth? It's not fair. And so that's why I said, oh, it's Jeremiah's turn. Because there were other prophets that would preach to the people. And they would say, yes, we love prophet Billy. He always makes me feel good. And prophet Joey, he's the one saying that the temple will never fall. Oh, prophet Jeremy. Jeremiah was not well liked, so much so that where the other prophets go to their hometowns to applause, saying, Woo, you made our little town look great. Jeremiah goes to Anatoth and they want to stone him. They want to kill him. They are protesting the entrance into his own city. So Jeremiah prays. Last week, by the way, we saw his first lament. We're going to see a series of these laments. It's Jeremiah praying in utter distress and anger and heartbreak. So last week, it was Jeremiah weeping and his grief. It was chapter 9, at least the center of it was chapter 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears. You may remember that for very memorable reasons as well. And then the second lament comes now. Jeremiah delivers the sermon and his hometown is not very welcoming. 11 verse 18, the Lord made it known to me and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds. This is talking about his family, his his hometown in Anatoth. You showed me their deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me. They devised schemes saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him from the land of the living that his name may be remembered no more. But, O Yahweh of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. For to you have I committed my cause. Jeremiah gets word that his hometown is plotting to kill him. So he goes right to prayer. Calls upon God. God, remember, you're righteous. So stick up for me. Verse 21, 11, 21. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the men of Anatoth, who seek your life and say, do not prophesy in the name of Yahweh, or you will die by our hand. Therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts, behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine, and none of them shall be left. For I will bring disaster upon the men of Anatoth, the year of their punishment. And then Jeremiah says, ah, amen. Feels a little bit better. His third lament comes in chapter 12, verse 1. It runs together so closely, you might as well just say this is the same lament. The numbers, of course, don't matter. But we see that he keeps crying out. Now he gets a little more honest. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them, they take root, they grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their heart. But you, O Yahweh, you know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like the sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away. Because they said, God will not see our latter end. Jeremiah is livid. God, this is not fair. I'm losing because I'm doing everything right and the wicked are winning. And the beasts and the vegetation and all of the things in creation are suffering because of their wickedness. This is not fair. He's full on complaining. Do you ever pray like this? Good. You're honest. That's what these laments are. They are a two-way prayer 
We're, and I, I said this last week, so I won't hammer it too much. But we're, sometimes we're guilty of one-way prayer so that we can avoid God. We're like, we check in, but we don't have to listen to him. So we come in with a list of burdens and things, and that's always okay to do. But then we stop with our list of things and say, thank you, God, and we leave before he has a chance to say something. These laments are meant to be prayed in such a way, one commentator says, they're meant to be prayed in such a way that you are fully disclosing your feelings so utterly that God has to respond to you. Do you ever pray so honestly, so crudely, that you know God's going to say something before you're done? Even if it's just to rebuke your language? That's what these laments are about. And Jeremiah is full on complaining Because he wants God to respond. Does he? Oh yeah, he does. Now, so this two-way prayer, it's your part. A conversation has two parts, right? A real conversation. There's your part, you open your heart. Full honesty, it's totally open. Hey, I'm really upset that the wicked are winning right now and I'm losing. That's not fair. God, I thought you were just. He opens his heart. Part two is God's part. We open our heart so that he can heal our heart. Jeremiah is betrayed. He feels like he's being backstabbed by people who should be loving him and supporting him. He's hurt and he's complaining out of the raw grief. And God comes in because he's opened himself up. He comes in to heal him. This is the purpose of these laments. Some people call them prayers of complaints. I think you can see why. Maybe that's more to the language of us, isn't it? Jeremiah's complaints before God. Okay, so he said his prayer. God responds in 12 verse 5 now. So remember what he said? It's not fair. They're winning. I'm losing. God responds, Jeremiah, if you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? (laughs) In other words, you stop being a baby. You're complaining about the wrong race. Here he is in race number one. It's not fair. They're winning. I'm losing. And God's like, Jeremiah, I didn't ask you to win that race. I asked you to win the one with horses. Yet your eyes are on the human level and you're comparing your life with their life and who's got what and who's blessed how and you're complaining about the score to the wrong game. It's like when you hear that your team, no, no, you hear the team is losing seven to three and you're like, oh man, I knew we were going to lose just knew it. Because every sports fan is pessimistic toward their own team. You just always know the flaws of your team more than everybody else. I knew they were. And then, and then you go and see the recording, or you go and see the paper, or you go and look online. Like, wait, we were the one with seven? That's how we often live. We're looking at the wrong score. Jeremiah is saying, they're all, they're all winning, and I'm losing. I was like, uh, wrong race, Jeremiah. I called you to a totally different one. It's over here. Oh. So, what we're going to see in these, these prayers of lament, these complaints, is the painful transition from straining and striving to win the race against humans to learning how to enter into the different race with horses. That's a painful transition. Because what Jeremiah just learned, when God said, what, humans are tiring you? How are you going to race against horses? What Jeremiah is learning is that to be in the other race sometimes means relearning what it means to win, even if nobody else gets it. Even if the rest of the world is stuck in the rules of the first race, you being in the second race means they're not going to understand. Wait. You're giving away some of your stuff? Loser. Because they're looking at the score from their end. Jeremiah, you think they're winning? You think them hating you is a bad thing and that this is awful? Jeremiah, I hear your pain, but listen, buddy, listen. If you want to be in the horse race, 
we need to transform some things in your life. And suffering is sometimes the only way I can get you to see that the race against humans is futile and will take you absolutely nowhere. Sometimes we have to be in the misery of humans to realize this isn't what I'm competing against anyways. And isn't it true that in those moments when you're just uncomfortable and things aren't the way they're supposed to be and these little moments of loss of control, these minor moments of suffering, you begin to realize, oh, I'm seeing it all differently now. I thought it was all about being the best at this, but it's about letting this shift me to another level of living, to another place, seeing the world differently. So, Jeremiah, are you ready to race with horses? Are you ready to race with horses? Yeah, well, there'll be some complaining coming from your lips if you are, because whew, it's going to take some stretching and some difficult situations. So what would you expect? Jeremiah keeps complaining. We're going to go to chapter 15 now. But as you go there, this is what we're missing. God's really upset. That's what you're missing. <laughs> chapter 13, there's this parabolic action in which Jeremiah takes this loincloth that he wears. Then he has to bury it. Then he has to go back and get it. And he pulls it out of the ground. And it's all rot. And he's like, well, of course. And God's like, that's Israel to me. They're meant to cling to me like a loincloth. But they went away, and then they ruined themselves. So I'm saying they're good for nothing now. They're not doing their part. Chapter 14, there's a famine, uh, a drought, excuse me. And um, we learn that that's what God said in Deuteronomy. You don't listen to my word. The rains won't come. That's happening. So, of course, nobody likes that Jeremiah is telling the truth, that like it's our fault that there's a drought. And then in 14, 13, there's the lying prophets, I told you, he complains about. The ones that make him feel like he's losing. But Jeremiah, you're not in their race. You're with horses now, so don't worry about what they have to say. Then chapter 15. It starts off so bad. Then Yahweh said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Huh? Moses and Samuel are two of the best prophets pre-Jeremiah. Jeremiah, if even some of my best prophets ever to come around were to stand in front of me and complain for the people and to plead that I would have mercy on them, they're that far gone, I won't even listen to Moses. Remember how Moses changed God's mind about wiping out the Israelites in the wilderness? Moses had some good skills, some good negotiation skills. He was a prophet that could talk to God in such a way. Jeremiah told that even if you were Moses, I'm not going to change my mind. So, Jeremiah, keep doing your thing. It's pretty worthless. That's how he feels, right? If, why am I preaching if nothing's going to change? Hard calling. So, 15 verse 10. As you can assume, Jeremiah complains. Why did you give me this job? 1510. Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them accuse me. And then Yahweh responds to him a little bit, saying, Have I not set you free for their good? Have I not pleaded for you before the enemy in the time of trouble and in the time of distress? Can one break iron, iron from the north and bronze? And then 15, Jeremiah continues his complaint. Oh, Yahweh, you know. Remember me and visit me. He sounds lonely, doesn't he? Woe is me. A distressful life. Woe is my mother who had to bear such a worthless human. <laughs> and then, oh, Lord, you know me. Remember me and visit me. And take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. God, everything I'm going through is for you, buddy. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Yahweh, God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. 
I sat alone because your hand was upon me. For you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be like, will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? It's like the vending machine. You press C4 for what you want, and then it says, out of order. It's like, is that what you've become to me, God? I put all my money in, and then you say, out of order. Therefore, 19, thus says Yahweh, so the complaint now has a response. If you return, Jeremiah, I will restore you and shall stand, you shall stand before me. If you return, did Jeremiah go astray? The implication seems to me to be, and one commentator agrees by actually translating this in such a way, to say that he's asking Jeremiah to take his words back. Jeremiah, I hear your complaint. It's a bit of a pity party. When our complaining becomes a pity party, the complaints are not directed to God, but they're directed to ourselves. Woe is me. I'm all alone. I gave up everything for God. That's basically his prayer. So this one um, commentator said, basically, if you return means if you take your words back, I will restore you and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, in other words, if you take your profit job seriously and use good, strong words instead of flippantly just throwing them out, you shall be as my mouth. They, his audience, they shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And again, that may mean something like, You dictate what is heard and said, and they will come to the message, but never change your message so that they'll come to you. Okay? So don't speak what they want you to say. And then in 20, this is what God told him in chapter 1 at his calling. And I will make, I think it's chapter 20, verse 20, and I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze, a castle. They will fight against you, Jeremiah's like, yeah, they are, but they shall not prevail over you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares Yahweh. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. Remember that? In chapter one, but I'm just a youth. He's like, but I will make you a bronze fortified city of war. A fortified city of bronze walls. No one, they'll come against you, but no one will prevail against you. And then we saw Jeremiah launch into his prophetic ministry in chapter 2. Now he repeats it. Why? Because sometimes we need to enter into real prayer of complaint because we need to hear. We need to hear God confirming his promises to us again. It's nice. It's one thing to have an, a card with promises on it that you can read and say, oh yes, God loves me. That's nice and it's helpful and it can remind us, but nothing beats hearing God speak to your situation in that moment when he says, I love you. You cannot replace hearing his voice with words on a piece of paper. And Jeremiah needed to hear God say it again and God said it again. And he's fortified We may say that Jeremiah seems like a very angry person at this point. He always wants revenge against the people that are wronging him, and he's blaming God for his situation. But as a human, wouldn't you feel like him in his shoes or his sandals? But here's something I read. The author said, A person's anger can show us the level of their faith. His anger here can show us how much faith he has because believers will argue with God while skeptics will argue with each other. In other words, why is Jeremiah arguing with God? Because he believes that God is there to hear him. 
Simple as that. And, and when you're going through really bad times, and like the city of Jerusalem is going to be leveled, and everybody in Jerusalem is going to have questions about their God. Now, our God failed us. Our God was defeated by the Babylonian gods. Did God break his promises? He no longer wants us. He doesn't exist. Oh, faith crisis is on the horizon. Jeremiah is modeling what it looks like in the midst of a faith crisis. That to argue with God is to keep your faith alive. Because, well, I haven't heard of an atheist arguing with God. That would be counterintuitive to their entire message. Although they write books about how God doesn't exist, so I don't understand that. But I don't write books about how Martians don't exist. Anyways, sorry, rant. Okay, done. Um, Arguing with God keeps the faith alive. You don't see Jeremiah going into Anatoth with a militia he hired. All right, boys, listen, I represent God here. I'm a pretty big deal. And if you don't start listening to me, I'm going to hope the Babylonians come here first and take all your children away. Now, you know, if you're in that position, you would feel, just for a moment at least, you would feel like doing that. It would feel good to let them know I'm an important person. God picked me, not you. Give me some respect here. But that is first-race thinking. That is thinking about where I am rating with the other humans around me. Am I in first? Am I in last? Well, I want to be first. I want to be respected. I want to be admired. See how Jeremiah is moving through these complaints, these laments. He's going through the painful transition of learning how to race with horses. It's a different level of playing life in this race. And that's why we can say, oh, I, don't, I sure hope Richard never makes a song out of these words. And that's fair. Because Jeremiah isn't praying this in public. These are his private complaints before God. And having these is meant to strengthen faith when things are difficult. Lest we take it out on each other. Skeptics argue and fight with each other. Politics, right? Okay. So God encourages him. His third complaint of the night, or I guess technically fourth, whichever. His fifth of the book... Sorry, I'm confusing you now. Chapter 17. He has one more, one more complaint. The next two will be in next week's passage, the last two. He has one more complaint. If you look at 17, verse 14. Heal me, O Yahweh. And I shall be healed. And this is a guy with blisters, sore hamstrings, a beat body. It's hard racing with horses. It is. Heal me, O Yahweh, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. Behold, they say to me, and I'll, you, I'm, I'm assuming you have to read this as mockery. Where is the word of Yahweh? Let it come. I have not run away from being your shepherd, nor have I desired the day of sickness. You know what came out of my lips. It was before your face. Or the Hebrew is literally, faces and presence are often interchangeable. It was before your presence. It was before your face. 17. Be not a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. You knew it was coming. Let those be put to shame who persecute me, but let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction. Exclamation point in the English Standard Version. This poor, poor prophet. But friends, you will be here too. These will be some of your feelings. These will be some of your prayers if you want to race with horses. Now at this point you're thinking, (laughs) not worth it. I'll be the best of the people race I can be. Hmm. 
you know, that's what Jerusalem was doing. And that's why the judgment was coming against them. And that's why Jeremiah is prophesying to them. It's because they're all about who can be first, who can be best, who can be on top. So much so that if you read the other, the other prophets are much more explicit about this than Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is more about the internal struggle of the, of the fall of Jerusalem. But the other prophets will all go on and on and say how the kings are ripping off from the poor to make themselves better. And neighbor, Jeremiah does say how everybody's lying against each other because no one can trust each other. Everybody is out for the survival of the fittest. Because they are wearied with racing against each other. And they're throwing elbows and they're tripping each other just to be the first to cross the line. So there will be some laments, some complaints if you want to learn to run with horses. It still doesn't sound worth it. I'll take the fall. Really? It's not just the fall that's coming. It's the misery of a cutthroat race. Do you know what's different about running with horses and racing this race? You know what's different about it? The rules are totally different. The rules are not first to the finish line is the winner. It's whoever stays in this race the longest is the winner. In other words, everybody, I should rephrase that. It's not the one who stays in the race the longest is the winner. It's whoever stays in the race, period, is the winner. So that 99 out of 100 could potentially win that one. No, this is not a trophy generation thing. This is the true delight of all of God's saints who will endure the suffering and the hardship and the putting others before themselves and the learning how to be transformed through brokenness and through pain and through questions of why is this going on. It's the learning to transform into a new creature that has the capacity to embrace more reality and more life and more joy, yes, more sorrow too, but can ex- that can encompass the entire human existence and do so through the totality of their life. That's a life well lived. But the one over here, it happens so quick. Before you know it, you're old and nobody likes you and you're angry because you didn't. You thought you won. You did everything you could to be the best. And at the very end, you found out some young hotshot just got better than you. It will happen. Or you finally reach the top and you realize, oh, there's already 17 flags planted at the top of Everest. Or you get to the moon and realize, yep, the Americans were there first. Then you get to Mars and you realize, oh, there are Martians there after all. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I mean, you get to Mars. Great. Yeah, you did it. You ran with the people. Okay, by 2100, it's going to be Pluto we're landing on, right? It's just, it's never going to end. You're never going to win. You're going, you're going to waste your life, sacrifice the things that make you live in order to win for a moment and be defeated in the end. It's like the guy who sprints past everybody, gets past the finish line, throws his hands up and says, I won, and then doesn't see the wall he's about to run into. (laughs) Great photo op, right before at least. (laughs) So this this is where Jeremiah is. He's learning to race with horses. He's in the horse race. He's given up racing with people. That was exhausting. This, we're seeing as complaints because I think we just need a companion, but there are some great highs of joy here. Great ways to live. So, I want us to look up. Um, I want us to look up at verse 5 of chapter 17. Seventeen five. Thus says Yahweh, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes his flesh his strength. Does that sound like the first race? The race with humans? Whose heart turns away from Yahweh. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. The poetry is just powerful to show you. You want that one? But this is what the this is what racing horses looks like, 1717. This also might sound familiar, by the way. Blessed 
is the man who trusts in Yahweh, whose trust is Yahweh. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. That's why you race horses, because that life is blessed and it's enriched and nothing can take it down anymore. Because this isn't about who's first or last. It's about simply enduring. Just keep at it. Then, in verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's why Jeremiah prays these complaints. The heart feels what it feels. He lets it out. Airs his dirty laundry before God. Because I don't know what my heart... I don't know to trust this thing. So God, here's what my heart is feeling and saying. Why? Because verse 10. So we can't discern our hearts. We can't trust it. But God can discern it. Verse 10. I, Yahweh, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So, friends, we may be in race one with humans, and our path may be cursed as the man who trusts in man, whose heart runs away, or whose, and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from Yahweh. We may be in that race, transitioning to racing against horses, which is where is the blessed man who trusts in Yahweh, Yeah, there's going to be some complaints along the way. It's hard to grow wings. I don't know if you've grown wings before. They kind of hurt coming out of the back. It's metaphorical, okay? It's it's stretching. You're growing. It's uncomfortable. But there's the path of, Ah, ah, Lord, what are you doing to me? He's like, well, I can discern the heart. Hold on, I got this. Oh, yep, you're good. Okay, keep going. That's what Jeremiah is doing. He's our guide in transitioning from one race to the other. And so we know that we're on good ground because Jeremiah went through it, so we can go through it. Okay. But here's the twist. (laughs) Here's the twist. We learn that we don't need to train for the wrong race. Spending all our lives training to race against humans. Instead, we want to transform into the other race, to race with horses, to let the new creation come out, to see what God can do through us. But here's where we learn that this is not exactly like the American self-help department works. It's not exactly like that. It's not, oh, there's a horse within you, and if you just follow my program, or if you just learn how to relax a little bit, or if you just learn to have the right kind of job or with the right kind of environment, or if you learn your Myers-Briggs categories, then you will finally be able to race with the horses. Set yourself free. There's, a, there's maybe a place for some of that, but th- that's not what God is calling Jeremiah to do here. What we learn is that the horse isn't us. The horse is God. And that if we're to race horses... He didn't ask us to start running harder, running faster. You got to be better than the people in that race to make it to this race. Never asked us to do that. He just said, come join the race. And then we learn, oh, I get to jump on God's back. After, you know, he jumps on his back with complaints, he gets to jump on his back as a horse. (laughs) And he will take me the distance. He will take me with the speed. He will leap over the obstacles if I simply hold on. Yep, you'll get saddle sores. So you'll complain, but you're also going to realize I'm on the best horse in the world. I am racing with the horses. God is carrying me. So he finishes chapter 17 and finishes his message, 11 through 17 has been one message God's given him with one last sermon.
17.19 Thus said Yahweh to me, Go and stand in the people's gate by which the kings of Judah enter and by which they go out and in all the gates of Jerusalem and say, I want you to go to the White House and say, Hear the word of Yahweh, you kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates, all the hot shots. Thus says Yahweh, Take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem and do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffen their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. But... If you listen to me, declares Yahweh, and bring in no burden by the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work on it, then there shall enter by the gates of this city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses. They and their officials, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall be inhabited forever." And people shall come from the cities of Judah and the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the Shephelah, and from the hill country, and from the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and frankincense, and bringing thank you offerings to the house of Yahweh. But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and do not bear a burden, and not bear, not to bear a burden, and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it will be, it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and shall not be quenched. End of sermon. Okay, so what's the point? The Sabbath, you remember it? Seventh day of the week, God creates the world. In six days, on the seventh, he rests. Israel was told in the Ten Commandments, you shall work six days, and on the seventh you shall rest. Be easier to remember that I'm the creator. And the day shall be holy unto me. The people of Jeremiah's time began using the Sabbath day, instead of resting to listen to God, they began using it to get ahead of the competition. The Sabbath day became a wonderful optional opportunity for those in the race against humans to get an edge on one another. Bah humbug, who takes Christmas off? Watch me go. Watch me work when my family needs me. Watch me take advantage. I don't go to church. That's for people that have too much time. They were all taking advantage. Jeremiah says, that is racing against humans living. To race with horses means to take the Sabbath off because these people trust the right horse. If you're training for the wrong race, you're going to be abusing the Sabbath left and right and each other. But if you are racing horses and learning to trust the right horse, trust looks like letting go. And letting go looks like letting go of the Sabbath day because I don't need it to get ahead of everybody else. I can use this day instead to learn how to trust the one I'm writing. The Sabbath becomes writing lessons for those racing the horses. The Sabbath becomes the day when we stop and we recognize, wait, God is the one who's created everything, not me. God's the one who's sustaining everything, not me. God's the one who's taking history to its climax, not me. Therefore, I don't have to keep outworking everybody else to make it happen. The horse is making it happen. The Sabbath teaches me to trust the horse I'm riding. So the Sabbath for us does not literally mean you've got to stop everything on Saturday, drop all your burdens. No, no, no. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that at all. Nor does it mean that if Chick-fil-A did start opening business on Sunday, they would be in sin. It doesn't mean that at all either. But it is great that they give their employees a chance to go to church. The point is, for us, if you are to trust your horse, what do you need to incorporate into your life that says, I'm going to let go and start trusting 
What areas do we need to say, I'm going to stop trying to outrace everybody else and I'm going to let go? What does this look like? Sabbath does not always mean a lazy day, although that may not be bad for some of us. It might be bad for some of us, though. It does not necessarily mean a lazy day. It means working in a different way. We spend six, metaphorically, we spend six days a week. We spend a big chunk of our lives in the first race because we have to. You ever go to Seder Brothers on a holiday weekend or right before a storm is coming in? You've got to know how to get to things quickly or you're never getting out of there, right? It's just how it is. So we spend a lot of our time in the first race, but we need those moments when we recognize, but that's not where I live. That's not where I live. I trust this horse. So it's a different kind of work. Well, we have a certain works, and you literally work at some places, and it's some, some places you have to just, you have to survive. There's a different kind of work on the Sabbath. It's an inner work. It's a work where we're still, maybe not physically. For some of us, stillness is running through the woods or walking through the woods. It's, it's driving on your motorcycle. I don't think you drive. You ride a motorcycle, right? It's going to the beach. It's shopping. I don't know. For some of us, it's a different pace. It's, it's where can you go that you feel more in tune with the voice that created the world in six days? Where can you go that you hear it on the seventh day? Because that voice is still speaking. God spoke, and those words never left. They're vibrating through the universe. They're vibrating through this room. They're vibrating through our lives. But are we ever still enough to let those words make us into a new creation? So Jeremiah is closing with this very encouraging call to say, all right, you want to switch races. You want to race with the horses. Realize you're riding the best horse and you need time to learn his rhythm so you don't fall off the saddle. So in other words, he's closing us by saying the Sabbath. It's a time to slow down and saddle up. It's a time to slow down and saddle up. That is how you race horses. So, you won, yay for you, but which race did you win? That is the most important question. Not what place you are in, but which race you are in. Father, we are asking that you would carry us over.